What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Mike Novogratz is the founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital. In this conversation, we talk about his time at Goldman Sachs and Fortress, how he lost billionaire status and what that meant, criminal justice system and bail reform, his thoughts on privacy and surveillance, and what he believes the future of crypto looks like. I really enjoyed this conversation, and Mike is one of the most thoughtful people in the space. I hope you enjoy this conversation as well. I'm sure a lot of you have used Kayak to find the best flight. Total's kind of like Kayak, but it don't find you no flights. It helps you find liquidity on decentralized exchanges, and it optimally routes your trades for execution. So Kayak, you find flights. Total, they help you find liquidity. We should get Kayak on for this spot that I'm providing them, but Total instead is our advertiser, and you should go visit total.com slash pomp. Again, that's total.com slash pomp, and let them know that I sent you. Tell them you love their product. Take a screenshot, tweet it at me. I'll drop you some fire emojis, and then we'll all be happy. So total.com slash pomp. Boom, another ad. As many of you know, crypto investors store their digital assets on exchanges or in cold storage for long-term safekeeping. However, this strategy doesn't help them grow their investment holdings or build overall wealth. With the new BlockFi interest account, users can now securely store their Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. 6% is an absurdly high rate. It's the best rate in the industry. I highly suggest you go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, that's BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning crypto today. Zen Ledgers for all you accountants and crypto investors out there trying to get through this bear market. They're a fast and simple tax reporting tool that saves you a ton of time and headache. Ain't nobody like dealing with their taxes, so let Zenledger do it for you. You can learn more by visiting zenledger.io slash off the chain to get your taxes done with ease. And as an off the chain listener, you'll get 20% off your 2018 tax forms. That's right. Listening to this podcast makes you smarter and saves you money. One more time, zenledger.io slash off the chain. Go check it out. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, I'm here with Mike uh, Novogratz. Uh, You are uh, a legend at this point, I think, in uh, both Wall Street and crypto. Uh, I really appreciate you coming in and uh, doing this. Awesome. I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Everyone knows, I think, a lot of the Wall Street background, but maybe like let's go pre-Wall Street. Um, You grew up in Virginia and then uh, wrestled at Princeton. I did. I did ROTC. Uh, So you did that in college? I did it in college. You know, back then it was a way to pay for college. And I grew up in a military family. And so you didn't even think you were joining the army. You just thought you were a way to pay for college. Yep. Um, man, I wanted to go to Princeton because Brooke Shields went there and that seemed like a cool place to go. <laughs> Plus Tom Cruise like went there in risky business. And so it was kind of in the school of the moment. Yep. Um, and not many, you know, kids from my area were going there. And so, uh, I afforded it by doing ROTC and then woke up one day and I was like, damn, I'm in the army. Yep. Um, I became a helicopter pilot in Fort Rucker, Alabama. Uh, it was a great year, one of the f- favorite years of my life, quite frankly. Uh, learned the South, uh, made a lot of friends. Uh, didn't really want to spend 
eight years in the army uh, and there was a track to join the National Guard. Mm -hmm. Reagan had put too many people in the uh, in the army at that point and his surge to build up our defenses, he overdid it. And so they were like, anyone want to volunteer to be in the guard? And my hand was up mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways because I really didn't think we were ever gonna be used in war yes. again. I mean, one of the, the great misjudgments of my life, you know, there was Glasnost and Perestroika and, and even in the army, they were always talking about tank warfare and, you know, when we're fighting the bear, you know, the folded gap, this is, they were, the whole army was set to fight this ground war in Germany uh, with the Russians invading. And I was like, dude, you guys don't read the paper. And so I was so smug and I was like, I'm, I'm joining the guard. I don't want to practice and never be used. And literally my best friend from flight school, I think he was in combat for about 25 straight years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you think about it, we invaded. Uh, first we went down to Panama and mm -hmm. got Noriega and then you had Desert Storm One and you had you had Bosnia and you had the, the second Gulf War, uh, Afghanistan. I mean Look, if you're a kid in America today and you're what, 17, 18 years old, you've lived your entire life with the US at war in the Middle East. Yeah. And so right. my generation of <laughs> officers uh, and, and enlisted men have really spent the bulk of their career if they stayed in the army in and around combat. Yeah. And I was convinced we would never go. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right, so, so what, uh, I wanna talk a little bit about Princeton wrestling. Um, I, uh, I played football at Bucknell and uh, I'm assuming it's somewhat of a similar experience, but the idea of participating in a combat sport where there's a team aspect to it, but really when you get on the mat, it's you versus the opponent, right? W what is that like, or what kind of lessons you learn there that you think help on the investing side or some of the other things you've done in your career? You know, listen, wrestling is a sport probably bar none that teaches toughness, mm -hmm. uh, toughness and discipline. And so, you know, you get the crap beat out of you. And so it, it teaches toughness, discipline and resilience. So you got to get back up and go back to, you know, you're not going to win every match. Uh, and so I kind of think it's the grit and toughness is what you yeah. take into into the investing world. Also discipline. You can't just be a good wrestler. You're mm -hmm. you're a good wrestler because you practice. You can't, you can't be a good athlete in anything. I mean, you know, Michael Jordan shot more basketballs than just about anybody. Mm -hmm. Tiger Woods swung more golf clubs. Uh, and so the great athletes, you know, it's push-ups, it's running, it's drilling. And, and it's that practice that builds a discipline that shows up when you're in competition. Yeah, is that it's it's the actual work that you put into it. Hundred percent. What what um I see you tweeting all the time on Twitter about uh, the UFC and some of these guys who are, are going. Um, I I've been actually pretty shocked that there hasn't been pressure or conversation about that becoming a collegiate sport, right? Just given how combative it is and popular it is well, now in the US. It's interesting. So I have been a big advocate for both high school and college wrestling and Olympic mm -hmm. wrestling. Uh, it's been a big part of my philanthropy and, mm -hmm. and a lot of my energy. And when UFC first showed up, I was really kind of anti-UFC. because Oh, I was really? Like, it's like there's there's something noble about wrestling, even the rules. Like I can pick you up, but I gotta, I'm responsible for putting you back to the mat. Mm -hmm. uh, and USC felt just too thuggy. <laughs> it felt like too barbaric, uh, almost like, you know, freaking dog fighting. Uh -huh. um, and remember the original UFC, there were less rules than there are today. Well, I was going to say, they put gloves on them, right? You couldn't kick people when they're down anymore. And we, we really had to be careful when we were getting wrestling into New York City schools, and we're now in, I think, you know, almost 200 different schools that okay. we've, my group Beat the Streets has slowly, when we started, there were 25 schools that had wrestling. Um, wow. We had to really differentiate ourselves from UFC mm -hmm. and say, no, it's not this violent sport. Yep. Um, listen, UFC has become more mainstream. Mm -hmm. uh, 
lots of my friends are participants. I mean, actually three of the champs right now are guys that are my wrestling guys. You know, really? Cormier is a great friend of mine. Ben Askren's a buddy. Henry Cejudo is like my little brother. That's uh, awesome. And so for me, it's been fun to watch them. And uh, But it, it took me a long time to kind of come around to UFC. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, what do you think about uh, Conor McGregor? He seems to have everyone's attention. <laughs> you know, Conor, I saw, I sat front row at that uh, Khabib fight. Oh, really? Yeah, it was fun. Uh, and... Matter of fact, when he jumped over, we thought he was jumping right at us. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he is probably the most charismatic athlete uh, since Muhammad Ali in mm-hmm. terms of pure charisma. Now he's not a quarter of the man, a tenth of the man Ali was. I mean, Ali was a, a poet and a and a, a real social warrior, and McGregor is just seems to be a fun guy that's, you know, a bit full of himself. But man, does he have charisma. Yeah. Uh, I don't think, you know, listen, he's not going to have a great UFC f- f- career from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wrestlers are going to continue to dominate UFC. They mm-hmm. just are, you know, in a fight when you get, you look what Ben Askren did in that last fight. I mean, he was literally getting destroyed mm-hmm. and stayed in it. Next thing he choked the guy out. Yeah. So, well, it just seems to like when a wrestler is an elite wrestler and they get their hands on somebody, get them on the mat, it's game over. over right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So uh, you're in the uh, National Guard helicopter pilot and all of a sudden you join Goldman and you go to Asia. Uh, it, describe kind of like why go to Goldman and then why take the job in Asia versus do something else. You know, after I left the Guard, I thought I'd go to D.C. and join politics. And Oh, really? I did. I, I love politics. I love policy. And I interviewed with lots of jobs and just nothing paid anything. And I had spent so much money in college. I owed my friends money. I had, I had student loans. Uh, I always like to live a good, big life. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those jobs just didn't pay a thing. And so a lot of the guys that got the entry level jobs either had wealthy parents, which I didn't, mm-hmm. or, uh, or really were, were more committed than I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I came to New York and lots of my friends, you know, they had started two years earlier working on Wall Street. And, you know, Princeton Wall Street is a pretty big con- connection. And I ran into a buddy of mine who got me a job, at, got me an interview at Goldman. And, you know, 24 interviews later, they gave me a job and felt like as good a place as any to work. Yeah. Uh, and so I had a 11 year career there, uh, first in sales, then in risk taking. Uh, loved it. You know, Goldman is a cult. Uh, it's I was going to ask about the, the interview process and how that leads into the culture. You know, listen, it's a it's, it's like playing for the New York Yankees if you're a baseball player. And so once you're in the process, you think, I want to be on the New York Yankees. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a wonderful firm. They've got a really strong culture. Uh, what makes it wonderful is they hire the best and the brightest. Mm-hmm. And so they continue to get great human capital. Um, they had this partnership gig. They still do a version of it, which keeps you there because you start defining yourself on, God, if I'm going to be a partner or not. Mm-hmm. And so you get paid less than you would if you worked somewhere else because you had that chance of the golden ring. Yep. Um, I was lucky enough to be in the kind of right seat at the right time and do well enough that I be- became a partner. And it was, it was a, it, to this day, it's a very cool um, fraternity. Mm-hmm. They have a Goldman Sachs retired partners dinner every year. And it's shocking how everyone from around the world that was a partner comes back just for that dinner. Really? There's a real tie to that sense of excellence and sense of, you know, greatness that Goldman had has been for a long period of time. It, it's funny to hear this because uh, I think that the military has similar, you know, kind of tie in. You, you know what people went through to be there, thrive there, et cetera. Um, I think that uh, some of these tech companies today, right, um, that really blew up and, and there were small teams that eventually built multi-billion dollar companies. 
And Goldman, um, I think still today, focuses on the best, the brightest. And now what they're even doing is they're um, going after new types of people. Like they've got this program where they go get military veterans, right? I think they get a lot of NCAA athletes. And So, so I, I think great companies and, and great institutions create extended family. Mm-hmm. You know, Princeton is a really neat place. It's actually people are more excited about Princeton after they graduate than when they're there. Uh, it's hard when they're there. Yeah. Uh, and so they create this sense of family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goldman has done the same thing. Like, so again, the re- being a retired Goldman partner, there's a synergy of I do well, it makes Goldman look good. If mm-hmm. they do well, it makes me look good. And so, you know, they reach out to their ex ex partners and keep us engaged as, as does Princeton, uh, as, as, as do great companies, Mm -hmm. uh, or great nonprofits. Uh, and so it's this idea of you can create identity. Like we're all searching for some identity, especially, you know, listen, when you see religion breaking down more and more, people want to feel community Mm -hmm. and your job is a place where there's community. Yeah. It's one of your identities for sure. What, um, what was it like, uh, working at a wall street firm in Asia in the nineties? So interesting, you know, Asia, 94 to 2000, I always thought they were like dog years. Mm-hmm. You know, like you worked, 1997 felt like seven years. <laughs> uh, you had this unbelievable exuberance of free markets and 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 China exploding north in terms of, you know, capitalism just spreading through China. Um, it was a little bit like the Wild West. Uh, at times I felt as a market participant, an unfair advantage in that, you know, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Barclays and Barings, these were institutions that taught you how to take risk and think about risk and understand finance. Mm-hmm. And often we were competing against, let's say in the Thai crises, mm-hmm. against a group of risk takers and traders that didn't have the education that we did. Yep. And so it almost felt unfair. Yep. Uh, and, you know, we did very well. Uh, and so. You think it's still like that? Or you think it's the the talent has really evened out? Mm-hmm. I think the talent is evening out. I mean, listen, China does not let in uh, U.S. financial institutions because they still don't want to compete. Mm-hmm. And they were—I remember sitting with Zhu Rongji, who was really the architect in a lot of ways of China's great miracle, or at least the second half of it. Uh, he was like, "Listen, we'll let in Kodak because we'll be able to figure out what they do real fast, and then we'll be able to beat them." Yep. We're not letting in Goldman Sachs. We're not letting in J.P. Morgan. Not for mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. And they still haven't. Like yeah. They were supposed to have. Yep. And it's one of these reasons we have this trade tension now. Uh, but partly because the jobs of risk and finance are are a little more subtle uh, uh, than they are, say, in manufacturing. Uh, they're getting there. Listen, I, 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 I don't like competing against the Chinese. You look in our industry, I mean, uh, I think the most influential guy in the whole industry right now is CZ mm-hmm. and what they're doing at Binance. Uh, he, he's running a hundred thousand miles an hour. Now, he doesn't have the same regulatory oversight that the rest of us are. He's kind of playing the game of catch me if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is a, you know, unbelievably dynamic entrepreneur. When we interviewed him um, on here, I'd spent some time with him before and, and was really able to help unpack why and how he's built it. And the part that's crazy to me is it's one thing to go from no revenue to a lot of revenue. If you're a high growth company in a big space and kind of you ride the trend and, and, and you benefit from it, he's also built a team of 400 people in 18 months, right? Like, and they're completely, they're in like 40 different countries. They communicate all through technology and just, it's incredible to 
scale and stay somewhat efficient and move at that speed with also hiring 400 people in 40 different countries, right? So the when you look back on the last three, four years, the most profitable parts of this industry from a business perspective, so it was profitable if you bought a bunch of you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum went up and you sold it. Okay, that was yep. great. But in terms of building a business was, can you connect into the gambling culture, mm-hmm. right? The single best business out there right now is Arthur Hayes. Like, I mean, it's just a freaking money printing machine. Mm-hmm. But both Binance, BitMEX, they, you know, uh, Bitfinex, they all connected into this love of Asian gambling. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, you can call it investing. It's speculating. It mm-hmm. is this surge. Trading, speculating, whatever it is. And yeah. that, being able to profit on that and, you know, in, with that enthusiasm of what we had as kind of the speculative bubble, literally gave these guys war chests to now grow out other businesses. Mm-hmm. And, and so it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I, I don't think in the long run, uh, those margins will be sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. There's, it's barriers to entry aren't high enough. Uh, and so I think the exchange business will come down some. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the guys that have the capital to invest in new things and hire 400 people. And, uh, you know, if you took the institutional route, it's been a much slower route. For sure. Well, and I think the big question is what's more sustainable over 10, 15 years, right? You know, I think we'll see a big transition in this industry in the next, few, you know, I don't know, six months to six years. Mm-hmm. Um, both businesses are, are quite valid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think right now there's almost been very little institutional business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a lot of business, a lot of work being done building the architecture to allow institutions. And the architecture is not just custody and trading and, and regulatory architecture. It's also educational architecture. It's education, educating the pension funds and the asset managers on how the system works and why it's important. Um, that louder. Oh, louder. <laughs> that that's happening, um, and it's happening not as fast as I'd like. Uh, if I've made, you know, off predictions in the last, you know, twelve months, it's always been thinking something would start, and then it's four months later than it's going to be. Um, but I'm wildly confident that it's happening because I see it yeah. every day. Well, and part of it too, I think that's really interesting. So. Um before, before we get into the institutional side, one other thing I want to cover is uh, you left Goldman and went to Fortress, right? Yep. And when you went to Fortress, uh, you were there when they took the company public, right? There was kind of a, a big uh, financial windfall event for a lot of people involved. Just walk through, like, what was it like going from Goldman to something that was newer, younger, and kind of earlier in its life cycle? Uh, and then what the parallels are that you see to today with crypto? Well, sure. So. I remember sitting around a table, you know, Fortress existed. It was a small company. Wes Edens had founded it. And me, him and Pete Brigger sat around a table and both Wes and I had the exact same idea that one plus one plus one could equal eight. That was just simple that we could create a alternative asset manager and have businesses that had very little to do with each other other than they were alternative mm-hmm. asset managers and put them together and, mm-hmm. and create synergy. And we set out, we literally drew the business plan on a napkin. We our first contract was on a napkin. Uh, we kind of used the Goldman theory of uh, true partnership. And so each of the, our businesses, we threw 100% of the uh, the profits into the pot and then split it up, mm-hmm. which in some ways was insane because we had so little to do with each other. Like mm-hmm. West ran a, a private equity business. And at that point he was just killing it. Pete Berger was building a lending, you know, specialty lending business. And he was just starting and I, I ran a macro business. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but we did it that way. Uh, we had great success the first four or five years and took the company public, you know, in some ways right at the right time and right at the wrong time. I mean, we were rock stars for a month. Uh, it was <laughs> the, the, the longest time be, between a stock and a stock opening on the New York Stock Exchange mm -hmm. in 15 years. And, mm -hmm. you know, we were, I don't know, 50 times oversubscribed in our IPO. And, wow. uh, and so that was exciting. Unfortunately, we ran right into the, the jaws of the 2008 financial crises. And quite frankly, having built a business as fast as we did and the headiness of going from, you know, a wealthy guy to a billionaire to like, you know, and having everybody call you and all that goes with it. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we stumbled in 08 or, mm -hmm. you know, depending the, the, the various businesses, uh, I used to kid around about like the three pigs. Uh, one was built of bricks, one was built of sticks and one was built of straw and, you know, uh, you know, some did better than others. Uh, For sure. But it was it was humbling. Uh, there were lessons learned. And I think the big lesson that is relevant to crypto is it's hard to build a business that fast. And because you have the two different forces. A, it's hard if you're the most sober, uh, you know, uh, a woke person in the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you're going from Arthur Hayes having been a, you know, fired from Citibank to now the richest kid walking around in Hong Kong, it's hard for it not to impact your your judgment, your ego, your, mm -hmm. and it usually takes some lumps mm -hmm. uh, and some stumbling uh, for you to kind of regain your, your balance. Um, and so people are gonna make mistakes. They're gonna make mistakes because they think they're un, un, you know, untouchable uh, when, when things happen well, as fast. And it's, it's not so much even just humbling when you're building a business in general, right? Forget the personal aspects of it. The business is going to go through good times and bad times yeah. and weathering well, it, that. It's is really hard to build a business. Like make <laughs> no bones about it. If I've learned one thing in, in Galaxy, having this is, you know, my third shot going through this stuff is it's hard to hire the right people. It's hard to get customers signed on. It's like everything is a little harder than you hope it would be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So you go through the fortress uh, time and then, uh, I think everyone pretty much knows when you first started looking at crypto, got excited about it, et cetera. Um, what was it like, though, to go from being a billionaire to not a billionaire to back to being a billionaire? Like, yeah. there's only a couple of people in the world who have done that <laughs> three times. Right? Yeah. Uh, listen, and, well, I was going to say, you've done it at least three, right? You know, a lot of it's just psychological. Like, so I, once I once we got very rich, I never mm -hmm. was not really rich. And mm -hmm. So you, it's unfair, you know, if you're worth six hundred million dollars or eight hundred million dollars or a billion dollars. In lots of ways, it's just it's the same thing. It's the same thing. You're going to yeah. give less to philanthropy in lots of ways. Yep. Uh, you can't buy a sports team, um, but there's nothing in your life or your or your ability to do new things that changes. Um, it was a lot of fun, uh, and it was empowering uh, to have caught you know, the Bitcoin Ethereum rally and mm -hmm. to have believed in it. And, you know, it's also, there was a lot of luck involved. If Joe Lubin was my college roommate and if I didn't stumble into his office in, in Bushwick when Ether was trading at 96 cents, I'd have made a whole lot less money. Yep, uh, absolutely. You know, just would have. Um, I get credit, I think, because I bought a lot and I held it for a long time and most people would have sold it and um, we traded it well. Um, but it was a lot easier when it the money didn't matter as much. Absolutely. I had other both intellectual pursuits going on, business pursuits going on, and financial pursuits. It, it, it's almost a sense of um, one of the things that holds a lot of people back is fear, right? And, and when you don't have a lot, you actually make decisions that if you 
have less fear or you have more freedom, you're empowered to make those decisions. And that's actually where the risk reward is um, kind of plays in your favor. Yeah, fear is really interesting because it's necessary, right? If me and you are walking across a balance beam between these two buildings, 46 floors up, we should be scared because mm-hmm. uh, you fall, you die. Yep. Um, and so fear is a, a helpful thing at times. Where it's unhelpful is when it's an imagined imaginary dragon mm-hmm. and your body locks into and often it's your ego right it's oh god what are people to think about me if i don't and that that's completely unhealthy fear and mm-hmm. so i once had a, a shrink who uh was yelling at me because he was like dude you're not scared of all the things you should be scared about like you shouldn't <laughs> ride a motorcycle 125 miles an hour when you're yeah. not a really great motorcycle rider like that's just stupid yep. you should be scared and you really shouldn't be scared of taking risk in life and failing. Yep. And I was like, okay, back to the, back to the drawing board. (laughs) Well, it's funny that you say this because uh, I saw uh, you tweeted um, kind of the top five uh, daredevils basically. And Alex Hana, the guy who uh, scaled uh, the big rock in, uh, uh, in the documentary that I recently watched, he has no, uh, um, kind of initiation of, I think it's the amygdala or whatever. He's, he, he, uh, he has a smaller amygdala than others. That apparently comes from practice. Oh, interesting. Uh, maybe it's genetic. Maybe it's from practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he gets less scared. Uh, yeah. It's, I don't know, if that documentary. I met him and and was just in awe. It's crazy. Yeah. Like the, the part that actually uh, I didn't know about the story is he started to climb, was like, no, nah, I'm not feeling it today. Cut yeah. down. And then just came back one day and, and said to everyone, tomorrow, you know, just like make six, me out there. Six months later. <laughs> just um, crazy. Talking to, I'm not a giant climber, but I have a place in Jackson Hole and a lot of the great adventure people mm-hmm. migrate to Jackson. It's an amazing mountain. Uh, and talking to other great climbers and adventure people, lots of them think no one will ever do that again. Like no one. Yep. Like that's a once in a, you know, not generational. It's like once in a humanity thing that he, wow. he literally climbed that thing with no rope. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it is pretty crazy. Um, all right, let's uh, let, let's get some into some of the crypto stuff. Uh, Galaxy, you guys got a whole bunch of stuff going on. Um, let's talk a little bit about the asset management stuff. is pretty self explanatory. You guys manage money. You invest it. You guys got some balance sheet stuff. You're you're making. So we have four businesses, if you want to think about it. And you know, we set out to be a, a credentializer in the space. Uh, I used to talk about Drexel Burnham because I think mm-hmm. Milken really helped credentialize you know, high yield and junk bonds, and they became a real part of the financial armory of for sure. uh, of all companies. And I think at one point, crypto uh, won't replace, you know, we're not gonna have a whole new world, but it's gonna supplement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gonna be part of the payment system of the world. We're gonna have security tokens. You're gonna, crypto and blockchain are gonna be integrated into lots of uh, both the consumer side of our world and the financial side of our world. And we wanna be part of that process. And so we have, that's the core, you know, reason to exist. Yep. Uh, we have a direct investing business. We invest off our balance sheet uh, and on behalf of one, one other uh, investor um, in the venture space, uh, in credit, in new new businesses in venture, in gaming, in, you know, new protocols and in wallets. And so that's been the, the most exciting space because mm-hmm. you're sitting with people and you're like, hey, this is the new new. And what's coming down the pipe? Absolutely. And having not, never done that before in the last few years is by far the the, the most enjoyable part of the, the business for me, and, and quite frankly, the hardest because it's a learning curve of mm-hmm. trying to understand what will work and what won't work. Um, it, you almost feel like you're uh, 
you're getting told the secrets, right? That's what I always find. Like these are the smartest people in the world and they're going to show up and they're going to tell you everything that they know. And they're going to tell you everything that they think is going to happen. And then you have to decide whether you believe them and they can do it. Yeah. Right. Like it's incredible to have those people show up to want to talk to you and tell you all this stuff. It's fun. It's a whole lot of fun. And, uh, that's really the, you know, the, the juice of, Mm -hmm. of this revolution that's going on. There's a trading business that we're, we're setting up and we're in the process of, you know, getting good at uh, the tokens from Bitcoin and, and Ethereum to all the tokens, you know, need to get bought and sold and stored and, and lent. And I think that part of the infrastructure is still not as built out as it needs to be across mm-hmm. our space. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these companies who are good at it slap their technology together and and it's complicated stuff you can't buy it off the shelf we've tried many times uh and so you know there's a race going on there to provide liquidity and lending services and and custody uh i think that's going to be a continuing growing part of the business because i see forget the coins we already have there are new ones coming we know Telegram's got a coin coming. JP Morgan's got a coin coming. Mm-hmm. Facebook has talked about a coin coming. Uh, these coins are need to be traded and stored. Mm-hmm. And so there's a big opportunity, I think, to continue to invest in infrastructure. And so how, how do you see the um, the Wall Street bank? So like what so the funniest word to me in this entire space is institutions, right? Because I think people who come from more of a Wall Street background, when they think of institutions, they think of the JP Morgans, the banks, the financial institutions. And then people who come from a, a less Wall Street but still asset management, they're thinking of endowments, pensions, sovereign wealth, et cetera. The Wall Street institutions. What's the general sentiment there? Right, we saw City go to build a coin. They've backed away. J.P. Morgan's not going to build one. Like, like, how do they all look at this? So, they have a monster business, mm-hmm. and why take risk on something that's really small yeah. until they're convinced it's going to be real? And so they're getting closer. I know Goldman, for instance, is gearing up around securities tokens. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not doing anything yet, but they are getting really ready for the. And, and looking at all the the questions on where would you store them? Is Do you have to build your own custody? Can you use someone else's custody? How are they going to work? Listen, the regulatory framework isn't there yet in security tokens. We're, yep. we're working really hard mm-hmm. uh, on that, on our security token mm-hmm. business. And we've got, I think, some cool things in the hopper. Uh, do you think that that's something that you're not only excited about, but will be just as big as kind of the the tokens, ICOs, all of that. Or do you yeah, look it's going to be a lot. It's going to be separate. a lot bigger and a lot less sexy. Yep. So think about something. We have one of the projects we've been looking at is tokenizing a, a triple net lease portfolio, which mm-hmm. is a bunch of leases from a Midwest real estate company, uh, maybe yield seven seven and a half percent. Like, what crypto investors you know wants to buy a seven and a half percent? You know, none. The only seven they're looking for is a seven (laughs) X. But there are plenty of investors in the world that would be thrilled with a stable seven percent and they're buying them now. Mm -hmm. And so all in some ways, the tokenization of that asset is going to do is it's going to be, at least in the short run, a call on liquidity Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe in the long run, some liquidity. Uh, In the short run, you're going to distribute it to probably the same exact people that would have bought it anyway. Mm -hmm. But in the long run, maybe we'll get to the point where you could crowd crowd sale distribute. Mm -hmm. Um, And transferability will be easier Mm -hmm. because you'll have that built into the token. And so it's a marginal increase in the product. There's a two and a half trillion to $3 trillion a year private placement market. Mm -hmm. And so each year, basically, there's $2 trillion of new public equity 
uh, and two and a half to three trillion of private. Mm-hmm. Some portion of that private is going to get tokenized. Of and course. so if you're any one of the major banks and you're like, hold on, I was part of that. And now if I don't get into the token business, I'm not going to be. They're mm-hmm. all going to be part of the security token world. Yeah. Again, it's not as radical uh, in lots of ways as you know, Whatever. changing the payments yeah. payment network or, or you know, creating peer to peer systems, um, but it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And and part of it too just feels like all they're going to do is they're really just switching out the underlying technology. It'll make some efficiency it's a, gains. It's a new wrapper. Yeah, yeah, make, but it's going to be a big, big business. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think a lot of people in crypto forget how large you know real estate is or the credit business in in traditional markets, right? I mean, th- these things. Um, I said to somebody the other day, I said, look, money is like, what, 85 trillion or so, give it, you know, globally. Real estate's like 215 trillion. So literally real estate as a market cap or addressable market is just at least two times bigger. And so this stuff is going to happen at some point. I think the big question, right, and, and I think your articulation of like six months to six years, right, is, you know, we, we, it's really hard to tell on the timing of this stuff. Listen, there's, there are, there's architecture that we're an investor in Templum, right? Mm-hmm. They've done a great yep. job of trying to get all the... The, the regulatory framework so you can actually, you know, buy a security token, list it there. Um, but even how that world plays out, where, where are these things going to get traded? Mm-hmm. That question is still open, mm-hmm. right? Because none of them are being traded or very few. For sure. And so I also worry, like, if, uh, if I'm in that trying to create the exchange, there's just no way that the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange and all the big play, you know, vested interests are going to, if we really do have a big surge in security tokens, are going to say, oh, let those new guys take all the business. Of course. Right? So the legacy players are doing their homework and they're coming in. And I think one of the biggest things I've noticed in the last year is, you know, their capital to the space has slowed down some, but the venture business, there's still plenty of capital coming in. If you actually added the capital being spent by legacy, uh, that's why more people are getting hired in crypto than, than than used to be. Yep. Because each of these places is working on their their piece of it. Well, and it's more natural, right? I think a, a large Wall Street institution is much better set up to go into security tokens than, hey, there's this new thing that may replace the U.S. dollar, right? That the radical aspects of this are just on the fringe, and there's everything from the regulatory standpoint to um, it's just. They don't have that type of talent today, right? Um, let, let, when we think, when I think of Galaxy, I, there are like kind of three buckets. One is I'll put the Bitcoin bucket, but really, is are we going to have, and I think we will, a market for what money is? Mm-hmm. You know, Bitcoin versus the dollar versus some algorithmic coin versus whatever. Uh, it is. We, yep. we, you know, money is really a, a social contract. Uh, right, Bitcoin is worth something because we say it's worth something. If me and you took the exact same technology and put it out there and said, hey, it's Novo coin and nobody cared about it, it's worth zero. Absolutely. Uh, Bitcoin's worth whatever it's worth today, $80 billion or $70 billion. Thank you. Uh, because the social contract, we've decided that I'll trust uh, and, and enough people have decided that they trust it and that it's, that it's worth something. And so I think part of and maybe the coolest aspect is we're going through this experiment that we are going to have a market for money. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of one. 
second bucket is really this idea of a Web 3.0. Mm-hmm. And the third bucket is really this tokenization, digitalization of stuff. Yep. And so there, there are different stories that are connected, but they're not the same stories. And so we kind of break up our thinking of the business and attacking each one of them. What is, um, let, let's switch gears a little bit. And uh, I know that you've been talking a lot about uh, surveillance in China and some of the stuff that's going on <laughs> yeah. there. What, what's, the, what's your thoughts on kind of just, again, Technology is permeating a society and the questions around how it's being used and by who. What's your thoughts there? So privacy is a a giant issue in the world. Um, I had a conversation with Lloyd Blankfein about this. And uh, Lloyd's one of the smartest guys I think I've ever met. Uh, And he's a lot of fun to have a conversation with. And he was like, never got you wrong. We've already lost it. It's just gone. And so deal with it. Uh, and I was like, oh, that was just too depressing. I haven't, yep. I, I haven't agreed with that yet. Um, and he's saying, just to be clear, he's saying that privacy, like, we've already lost privacy. We've already lost privacy. Right? Yep. And so like, we're going to, the, the, the new generation is just to learn to live with a non-private world. Yep. Um, it scares me, you know, the social responsibility score that China is, you know, there, there were 30 million people last year that were not allowed to travel in China, let alone out of China, uh, because of their social responsibility of the score. score. Right? That, so it's not like a theoretical thing. It's happening. And when you look at the growth of AI and how, how good AI is getting at understanding people's behavior, uh, and you have data, all of their data basically being shoved into uh, you know, a government-owned database, uh, all, their, all their spending data, uh, it's a really scary thought. And listen, I looked at a, uh, a company uh, that I'm debating to invest in that takes a picture of you and instantly shows me all the pictures that match your face on the web and your name. And so yeah. I never can remember anybody's name. Like this guy forgot his name already. I take the picture and I get his name. I get his bio. Uh, that's scary enough. Yep. Imagine in five years when you've got a bot that can race through every last database that you can sneak your way into and find every last picture of him. And next thing you know, we find a picture of him going into an illicit place or quite frankly, going down the street and interviewing with somebody else. Yep. And so it's like, you know, I, I, I fundamentally believe we have a right to privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how you stop it. I mean, there, there's lots of ideas, you know, with the blockchain being able to, to help. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what about Facebook? And, you know, they've run into a lot of these issues and now they're starting to talk about, you know, do they decentralize some of the products? Do they maybe give you as the user a little bit more control? Like, how, how do you think a company that, again, very similar to the banks, they've got a huge business and it's, and it's working, but there's a lot of concerns and, you know, people are saying, hey, what's around the corner? I think it'll be one of the most fascinating things to watch over the next you know, six months to again a few years on how legacy companies who are under attack because of their privacy respond. Mm-hmm. Um, bold ones will respond boldly, and others won't. And and uh, you know, I, I you I, think I, that the bold response is needed. You know, I think the bold response would help. Yeah. Um, I think you know, there's going to be this is going to be attacked two ways. Companies themselves are going to realize I better change mm-hmm. or. I'm going to lose some consumers, but governments are going to, you know, Europe is much tougher on privacy than we are. And you're going to see governments uh, regulate these guys. You can already hear it. Um, there are just too many, too many breaks. Yeah. I mean, I, this, 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 and one of the most scary parts of, of the technology that all our smart friends have created, you think about this New Zealand video that went viral of some jackass coming in and shooting up, you know, all these innocent people. And, you know, Facebook has all the vested interests of the world not to take it, not to let it go go viral. Mm-hmm. 
they worked as well as they could and they got it down as fast as they could, but it's still a zillion people saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the number they said was in the first 24 hours took down 1.5 million copies of the video. There you go. Crazy. Um, think of that in a peer-to-peer sensorless system. Mm-hmm. Like that ain't good. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so should media even be on the systems? You know, they're, they're real ethical questions mm-hmm. to ask. Well, well, and the trade-off that you're talking about here is so all of a sudden there's this video that gets streamed live. There's no centralized party to take it down, right? And that case yes. is bad. The counter argument is in China, you have people who want to get words out and so they put it on the Ethereum blockchain, right? <sighs> yes. Good and bad, same system. 100%. And so it's really complicated mm-hmm. and it's really nuanced. And it's going to take a lot of smart minds to try to figure out, uh, right? The pure libertarians are, are, are you know, devil be damned. And if, there are 45 million images of kitty porn out on the dark web and on the web. Crazy. So do you know what kitty porn is when people say kitty porn? No. It's pre-verbal. That's three year and under. Like, I don't want those images in any society yep. being available to anybody. Uh, and so it's really an interesting debate mm-hmm. on where privacy and how you do it. And so, again, I, I wish I was smart enough to know the answer. Uh, I'm fascinated with the subject. Uh, there are some things that are simple. I don't want my DNA going to 23andMe, even though I licked that stupid stick years ago. Uh, I would rather that be between, you know, encrypted into a in, into a kind of a blockchain database and, you know, companies being able to pay to to get it to use that data that seems like the the simplest architecture and and i don't think people would disagree with that yeah uh the porn world you know you know you can have your own moral decision mm-hmm. you know 18 and over okay maybe but but when you're talking three years and under people don't have no no agency i don't think anybody on the planet would say that's okay yeah well and part of it too is um there's you have to layer on then the regulation piece of this, right? In some countries, there's much lax, much more lax rules than not. And um, I think a lot about when you go onto the internet, a lot of times it acts as a single country, right? You know, the, the laws that apply in kind of the physical world, sometimes they're hard, right? If you're, you know, if you go and visit a website, if it's on a server in the US versus Canada versus China, Sometimes there's impact, sometimes there's not, right? Yeah. And, and that really just makes things more complex. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of criminal justice. And uh, and I know that you're really passionate about uh, kind of this bail reform and stuff. So I, I don't think a lot of people understand some of the problems and maybe just articulate, you know, the two or three things that you kind of think are the most screwed up. And, and then we can talk about why they are the way they are and, and kind of some of the solutions. Sure. So one of the, the great windfalls for me of, having bought Ethereum cheap. And when I sold a bunch uh, and wanted to buy some fun things for myself, I, to make myself feel less guilty, decided to give an equal amount to to charity or to uh, to a nonprofit. And, oh, so and you split it, you did 50-50. Well, well cl- or close, I, I, you know, a little, generally. Yeah, roughly. Um, and so I got behind a group called The Bail Project. Uh, and so I heard the story once and mm-hmm. that's all you needed to hear it. So here's the story. Tonight in America, 450 to 500,000 people will go to bed in a jail cell, uh, a dangerous, stinky, you know, unpleasant cell, uh, having been arrested but not convicted of a crime mm-hmm. solely because they can't afford bail. Uh, so they've been they've been arrested. They're put in a jail cell. They're told you can get out so, if you have X dollars. Yes. If you don't have X dollars, you have to stay here. Jamie Dine and, Diamond from... Uh, 
JP Morgan yesterday was talking about the two Americas. And he said, listen, 40% of America can't afford $300 or $400. Mm-hmm. 60% of America can't, or 50% of America can't afford like $1,000. You know, bail gets set at $600, $800. Not only most people can't afford it, uh, they don't even have a friend they can call. And bail bondsmen don't work on those low-level bails. Mm-hmm. And so they stay in jail. Now, if you're in jail, you are seven times more likely to plead guilty. Really? Uh, because you want to go home. You're going to lose your job. You don't get to see your kids. You're, you know, it's in a dangerous environment. And so you plead guilty, usually for time served. And now you've got a record and it's really hard to get a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we bail you out, 50% of the time, the DA drops the charges. 97% of people that get arrested never actually go to court. Uh, wow. It, it's all plead out. Um, and so it's this completely screwed up system based on do you have the money mm-hmm. to pay bail. And in uh, that project, what they basically have, I think it's like a revolving bail fund. So we raised a whole bunch of money now and we are setting up in 25 cities to literally show up at jail and pay people's bail. Uh, it's a humanitarian, really direct service. Getting someone out of jail helps. 40% of all prison rape happens the first five days you're in jail. 40% of all prison death happens in the first five days you're in jail, right? So jail is one year and under and prison mm-hmm. is one year and over. Mm-hmm. And so jails are dangerous. Go out to Rikers. It fucking scares the shit out of you. Absolutely. Uh, or go to the, the ship up in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I plunged into that and it was this unfairness thing that just touched on something. Mm-hmm. And, and since then, you know, I spent a whole lot of time. I've got a team that has looked at the whole arc of criminal justice for, mm-hmm. from pre-trial to probation and parole. I teamed up with Meek Mill and Jay-Z, which was kind of cool, on um, probation and parole. There are four and a half million people stuck in this idiotic system of probation and parole, mm-hmm. where you might be there for 12 years, 15 years. Meek's still on probation. He came to play a concert in New York City last week. He's got to get uh, permission from- To go. For a crime that they already realized he didn't even do. Yeah. But he's still stuck in the freaking system. Well, the, the stat that I heard, and I'm going to forget exactly what it was, but there was some high percentage uh, uh, probability that if you go for your parole hearing, so you're in jail, you're you're possibly allowed to leave and the judge is going to make a decision. And the people who go within like the hour and a half before lunch get denied parole at a much higher rate than people at early in the morning. I read that once. <laughs> and, and so, you know, again, this is their, this is their life, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and the part that I've always just you wrap your head around. So if I'm a judge, I'm sitting there and somebody comes in and we convict them of whether it's drugs, crime, you know, whatever it is. And we and then they say, okay, you have to sentence them. I can say six years or seven years. Doesn't really sound like that big of a difference. It's 12 months of somebody's life. They're going to go sit in jail. Right. And and so there's a huge. Yeah, there was a there was a big outroar when. when uh, Paul Manafort, Manafort yeah. got four years only, only. And I was like, you know what? Four years is a long freaking time. Plus they're taking $28 million. He's got to pay back. Plus he won't be able to work and he's humiliated. That's probably a fair sentence. What's unfair are these crazy long sentences we give people for a little crap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we're thinking about it all wrong. We need to change. One of the things we did this year, we took 38 people to Germany. We took the prison, heads of the bureaus of prison from Louisiana, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Michigan, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Uh, We teamed up with Vera Justice, who have been doing this work for 75 years, and toured the German and and Norwegian prison system. And to start with, same crime, one-third the sentence. So our sentences are three times longer. Okay. Um, But the big difference is they look at the entire 
system from a from a completely different lens. So the moment you get sentenced, post that, you lose some liberty. Mm-hmm. Everything else is about your rehabilitation. How can I make you a productive member of society again? And so you're treated like a human. And our system is about degradation, debasement. Mm-hmm. Uh, the moment you get arrested, you're treated like an animal. I mean, you walk, I've been to seven jails now in the last year and a half. You walk through jails, like you know, you're shitting right in public, you know, guys are master. I mean, it's, it's you know, you, you start treating people like animals, they act like animals. Yep. And there is nothing about rehabilitation and moving forward. Mm-hmm. There's a mean-spiritedness, there's a punishment side that, like that our whole system seizes on. When I walked through the German jails, the US jails and the Norwegian, and I was just gonna give them a grade, Germany would be a 90 out of 100 and Norway would be a 99 out of 100. Mm-hmm. The US is like a 12. Really? I mean, we're, we're, it's barbaric. Up until February of this year, if you were a woman giving birth in a federal prison, you were shackled hands and feet to the, to the gurney. Shackled. In 13 states today, you're still shackled as a woman giving birth in prison. It's incredible. Like, it's freaking barbaric. Uh, and it, does, it serves no purpose. What, what do you think about the death penalty? I think we should do away with the death penalty for a lot of reasons. One is that there are so many people that, you know, un- unfortunately they make a mistake. Mm-hmm. That poor indigenous people, especially in the South, haven't been provided the good defense. There's emotions around crimes that that show up uh, where DAs and jurors could be. It's like a know, mob mentality. Uh, it cost us a whole lot of money. Uh, I even think these crazy, you know, triple life sentences. Uh, we have 10,000 people in New York state prisons right now that are over 55 that have already served 15, 15 years. The chance of them committing another crime if you all let them out is about zero. That's just mm-hmm. statistics. Mm-hmm. So we're paying all this money to keep them in because, you know, they killed someone it's at something one point in their 18, life. 25. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I've learned in this 18 months I dove in is Usually between 15 and 20 years in jail, something changes in somebody. They take complete ownership of what mm-hmm. they've done and they've changed. Matter of fact, I had two, you know, two guys who had committed murder in my house last week and really? I left them with my kids with zero worries. Mm-hmm. Uh, unbelievable, decent, decent humans. Mm-hmm. And so you have to ask yourself in our whole system, do you believe people can change? Mm-hmm. If you don't, you got a different. You got a different criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. I fundamentally believe you're not your worst moment in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, partly because I've had a lot of shitty moments myself, <laughs> and I I refuse to believe that's that's the that's the that's who I am. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you've got a you, you've got a number of kids. Uh, what, what's their take on crypto, or what uh, what have you done with them in terms of uh, technology and crypto? You know, my kids used to get asked to school all the time once once I started being public, and they were like, "Yeah, my dad's got enough for all of us." <laughs> <laughs> That, that is uh, that's epic because what they're like uh, late teenagers I've early got, 20s no I've got well I've got a 24 year old who's you know working in the movie business and and a 23 year old who's teaching for Teach for America in Chicago and I've got a 21 year old who's still at school an English major and I got a 16 year old who's a sweet kid here in the city <laughs> I, which one gives you the hardest time yeah my 21 year old <laughs> i i uh that, that was a good time in life what um so, so one thing that you've also said uh going back to the crypto stuff um every fund should own some bitcoin right not just crypto funds in terms of you know macro uh hedge funds etc explain a little bit more I, I agree with you um and, and we talk a lot about it with institutions uh but, but why the funds and kind of what, what's the benefit there well, so I, 
Bitcoin is a kind of, if you step back and like, how cool, like 10 and a half years ago, we have this experiment, this social experiment. We've got a technology that allows us to create this sovereign money, really. We've never had sovereign money outside of a sovereign. Um, and it's worked. $70 billion market cap 10 years later is staggering. And so mm -hmm. like someone should bow down and, you know, you know, rubs, rubs, rub Satoshi's to toes and, and thank him. Um, Bitcoin in my mind has taken this place of hard money or, or you know, mm -hmm. gold has been hard money. So I keep thinking of it like gold as store of value. Um, it's clear to me that there's there's architecture being put in place to allow easier and easier adoption and access mm -hmm. of it. And so at its base, just as a digital store of value in a world where most money gets inflated away at a pretty high rate, mm -hmm. you know, the euro's 20 years old and looks like there's arguments that it could blow up. It might not, you know, there's a huge vested interest to hold it together, but man, oh man, half of Wall Street thinks the euro's toast. Average currency is 27 years old. And so, you know, Bitcoin provides a really interesting alternative to gold. Mm. Um, forget the other stuff that might come out of it. Mm. Forget level two solutions and payments and everything else. Yeah. Um, just at its core, sovereignty should be expensive. People bitch about Bitcoin's expensive. And I don't think it's that expensive. I actually, you know, wired, you know, from my bread wallet, $10,000 worth of Bitcoin to someone a week ago. And it cost like six cents. Mm -hmm. uh, seems pretty damn cheap to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I think the the macro case for it is pretty strong. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you're going to put a couple percent of your portfolio in, there's a decent chance, you know, you, it catches wind. We still, you know, Fidelity is just getting set up. Back continues to get delayed a little bit, but it's not going to get delayed forever. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be in, in the game. And there's lots of other players coming. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like what you're doing is you're making kind of a, a qualitative look. The, the reasons why this works, check out, right? So there are legitimate reasons why people want this asset. And then also you're making a kind of non-correlated, asymmetric return, you know, supply-demand type yeah. argument that just look, it, if demand increases, the price is going to go up. Gold's got a $8 trillion market cap or $7.5 trillion market cap. And so we're, we're 100 times off on that. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to get there in Bitcoin in the next year or two. But over a 20-year period, could that happen easily? Mm -hmm. Easily. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's giving zero optionality to all the other stuff. Of course. Um, and so I think it's seems like a pretty smart portfolio bet. Uh, you, I want to make sure I get this right. You sit on the advisory committee of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, or at some point you did? I did for okay. three or four years. What, uh, what do organizations like that think of crypto, blockchain, like just knowing how they think and meet and stuff like that? So I remember going to visit the Fed in 14, maybe with Dan Moorhead. Okay. And I took me and Dan, I, cause I, so I was on the committee. I called him. I said, I want to come talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> and you know, to be fair, they were really in interested and they were well-versed even then. And their view was, it'll never be a currency because fixed supply currencies just don't work. They're too easily squeezed, uh, manipulated, and uh, but maybe as, a, maybe as a payment system and they love the blockchain concept and uh, not payment system, maybe as a, a um, the blockchain as a, as a ledger, they love that, that technology they, they were fascinated with and maybe as a store of value. Um, it just isn't nearly big enough or to, to, to reach their level of importance, right? We have yeah. a $20 trillion economy. Um, 
And so I literally talked to, to one of the Fed governors a week or two weeks ago and about stable coins. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, you know, no big deal. Yeah. Uh, talk to me. They, they probably should worry about it more than they do, but it's just not on their radar. Yeah. And, uh, and if it grows in size, they'll start paying attention, but it's just not there yet. The problem is by the time they start paying attention, it'll be too late, too late for them to do yeah. much about it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, before uh, you came, I tweeted and asked uh, what questions people had. And uh, the, the most popular question by engagement was uh, for you to tell a story of the most extreme, fun, or savage thing that you've done in your life. <laughs> and so I said, uh, I'll ask him. I don't, I don't know how uh, how far he'll go, but uh, but uh, what, what story would you tell? It's you know, just kind of a, this is Mike Novogratz at his best. <laughs> when I... Uh, I've told the story about, you know, when I left Goldman Sachs, it wasn't a uh, graceful exit. And I took a year to kind of sort my shit out. And, you know, you're depressed at that point. You're trying to get yourself feeling better. And uh, me and two friends went and we went to the Sahara and we did this race called the Marathon of the Sands. Okay. Uh, It's a marathon a day for six days across the Sahara. And running, running. And so you're running in 135, 140 degree heat and then it freezes at night. Uh, You got to carry your own food. They give you six liters of water a day. And it was an amazing life fulfilling. You know, it's just you're like, what am I fucking whining about? I'm in the (laughs) middle of a gorgeous desert. I'm running with 600 cool people from around the world. Uh, My feet hurt. Uh, You just felt alive again. Yeah. And so I, when we finished it, I had literally no skin on my feet. Like all the Europeans, they'd get a blister. They'd quit the race. Like, but are you quitting? They're like, I got a blister. I got to quit. And I was like, you're a goddamn wimp. Uh, and so I literally finished with almost no skin on my feet. I came home in a wheelchair. Uh, but it just, it kind of reaffirmed like toughness and life and like stop whining. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I literally soon after that, like, you know, started Fortress or, you know, joined Fortress and, yeah. Moved on to the next chapter. It, it is uh, events like that. I think are very. Uh, they're a reset button, right? Yeah. Anytime you kind of go through an event in your life, if you just go, um, I know people have gone and done endurance races. People have just you know disappeared. Actually, you went to what India for like a month, right around the Bitcoin Ethereum stuff. I did India for many times for for long periods. To again, I have this thesis that we're all screwed up. Like and our parents screw us up no matter how they try. And so your your number one mission in life is to sort your shit out. And there are lots of ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Heck, I went to a, a one week healing center in Costa Rica two weeks ago uh, on an ayahuasca journey, which that might be the most radical thing I've ever done in my life. Explain uh, a little bit about what that is. You know, it's a plant-based medicine that, that purges shit in your body that you don't need and gives you a real therapeutic insight to yourself. You literally have a conversation with yourself like you've never had. And you're like, you think you're talking to someone else. You're like, it's just me. And so it's therapy without the therapist. Um, it's had, you know, people there were for all kinds of different reasons, you know, for healing trauma, for healing pain or for just learning about themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, but I try to do one thing a year where I learn about myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that my second mission is then try to walk each other home and try to help out your community, however you, however you want to define that. Mm-hmm. If it's charitable, if it's being nice to your cranky brother, if it's being a good employee, but like we all have capacity to, to help each other out. And so the more you sort your shit out, the easier mm-hmm. it is to help other people out. Yeah. Well, uh, well, and look, one of the things that, um, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about is uh, uh, I, I recently was looking at all the drug statistics and crime. Right. And so, you know, it's like one point three million Americans every year get arrested for like simple possession of weed. 
right? And 22 states have now decriminalized this stuff. And I think from your standpoint, it's, okay, look, the laws are screwed up. And at this point, everyone knows we got to fix this stuff, right? But there's also an element of um, you can use all sorts of different therapies, whether they're drug-based or not, to help better understand yourself, better understand what you want to do right. in life, et cetera. Now, to, to be fair, I, I think a lot of drugs are not good for you at all, right? Mm-hmm. The, the world would be better off if there was no cocaine. It just mm-hmm. would be better off. Uh, the world would be better off if there was no heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by no means do I want to advocate for for those use. There are some drugs or plants uh, that really do have a, a purpose. For uh, sure. And from a criminal justice perspective, most of this should be in, in health and mental health mm-hmm. and throwing people in jail uh, for being addicted to, to anything just as a it's counterintuitive to them and ever becoming a, a productive member of society. And so I think we should decriminalize all drugs. And it's a radical statement because I just said there are a lot of drugs that are really bad, like bath salts. No real purpose in this planet. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we'd be better off without bath salts. Mm-hmm. Uh, most, you know, lots of drugs we'd be better off without. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's a complicated issue, but like people putting people in jail because they're a heroin addict uh, doesn't really help them not become a heroin addict. Like yeah. helping people deal with their trauma that led them to become an addict, uh, that's where we need to get society to well, look it at. It goes back to your whole point about the the criminal reform system, right? The, the jails, et cetera, should be driven by rehabilitation, not by pure punishment. Yes. Right. And, and the more that you can focus on that, the better the outcome is. 100%. Yeah. I, I actually agree with that uh, a lot. Um, last thing for you, uh, CBOE recently announced that the Bitcoin futures, they're going to they're going to kind of revisit, et cetera. I think a lot of people uh, are yelling and screaming on the internet about this is really bad. Look, you know, no one wants this stuff. I take the view that that's eh, probably not the first product that institutions want to participate in. Um, wh- wh- where are you on this, and how do you think it affects the uh, the industry? Listen, I think li- liquidity is always good for your space. I mean, the reality is the CME kicked their butts, yeah. um, and you know these guys have limited resource on where they're going to spend their focus, and they decided to spend it elsewhere. Um, Finding leverage in Bitcoin is going to get easier mm-hmm. as the the architecture of the space gets better, right? You're already seeing the the lending market around Bitcoin went from ten percent to like three percent. So now you can you, once you can borrow, you can short, mm-hmm. and so now it's not so hard to short Bitcoin. It used to be almost impossible to short Bitcoin, absolutely, right? In two thousand six, don't know how to do it. Um, and so as the the lending markets of all these coins get built up, you can, and then all of a sudden firms like us will start giving people leverage once we've done understand the customer well enough, and so. Uh, a, it wasn't great, but it's not it's not critical. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you look at Arthur's business uh, over in wherever it's based, wherever yeah. it's based these days, um, gives you unbelievable amounts of leverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't love the way that, for, as a user, I would be very careful. Uh, well, he's given what like fifty, I think fifty times leverage on Ethereum and hundred on Bitcoin or something. <laughs> You know, he's a fascinating guy to me. I listen, <laughs> listen. I I once met him, and I was. We're gonna, gonna be mad at the guy, and by the end, I was like, "Can I buy a piece of your business?" <laughs> he was like, "Absolutely not." I was like, "Please." Uh, listen, he's built a great business. Uh, he's smart. He's tight. Uh, there are businesses that are living outside of what we would consider the regulatory sandbox, mm-hmm. and you know, it's another thing that's going to be interesting to watch over the next few, few years. Like, I can't build a business like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, based in New York, I pay my tax. I, you know. Um, 
you can, there, there are, you know, Binance is living outside of that mm-hmm. regulatory sandbox. Bitmax, there's plenty of them. Yeah. And, and um, some are openly violating regulation. And then some are saying, I'm just going to go to the places where the, it's the most lax. 100%. Right? You know, 100%. There's two very different approaches. 100%. And listen, I think that's all going to play out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last thing I'd say is I'm more confident today on the space than I was six months ago. And and even, a, even a year ago, because I think you're going to see in the next short period of time a few announcements that wake people up and they're going to look back and they say, wait a minute, this is no longer a fringe thing. Like it, it might not be taking a huge amount of of commerce right now in the consumer or the financial space, but the commitments that legacy players and crypto players are going to make in the next six to 12 months, the whole world's going to wake up and going to say, oh, this is real. I got to get involved. Mm -hmm. And so the decision process around, is this a real thing or not? Does the technology work? Will it work? Do we even need crypto? What's the use case? Those questions are going to fall away much quicker than people think. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you're like, ah. And so I don't know when it's going to happen. I have a sense there'll be some big announcements. Uh, It's one of the cool things of being in a in a seat that sees lots of mm-hmm. product projects and talks to lots of, you know, both institutions and, and companies. But I think both on the consumer side and the financial side, mm-hmm. you know, the change is coming. And again, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong by some timing. Yeah. But I'm, I'm more confident that I'm not wrong, uh, that you're going to see this. And there'll be a step function mm-hmm. where people are like, okay, crypto is a real thing. Because a lot of people still don't believe crypto is a real thing. Well, I was going to say, one of the things that from afar I've always appreciated about you, and there's you know, a handful of other six, seven people who come from very traditional financial backgrounds, is it always seems like you've had this belief in the inevitability of the assets, right? Like, of course, this is going to happen. When does it happen? At what scale? Which asset is the one that you know kind of takes the lead? All of these different things are to be determined. But of course, this is real. Of course, this is going to persist. And of course, it's going to grow over time, right? Like, to your point, there's a lot of people who don't believe that stuff, right? Like, they're still actually questioning, like, is crypto as an asset class and as an industry going to go away completely in the next five years? Right. Like, there's people who believe that. And I think sometime in the next year, a lot of those skeptics are going to be like, okay, I give up. Uh, And they're going to not do that just because it's more of the same old thing. I think you're going to see some projects announced that are of scale uh, that get people thinking. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. So JP Morgan, the largest, second largest bank in America is now trying to get involved. Okay, that's a centralized coin. It's not, not really the yep. same DNA of our spirit, uh, of the, the, the spirit of the community. But, but when you see more distributed systems, mm-hmm. even if they're not decentralized, I mean, decentralized distributed, it's a nuanced word. Um, I think you're going to see a sh- kind of a mindset shift. Look, I, I give the bankers a harder time than anybody else, right? With the whole long Bitcoin short, the bankers, et cetera. But if you take the JP Morgan coin, for example, it's actually incredibly intelligent. It's forward thinking. And if you're in their seat, that's probably the best thing for them to do, right? Is to go and say, look, we're going to use this internally. We're going to kind of control the risk. We're going to use it for ourselves and maybe a couple of clients. And if it works, then we can branch out from there. But it makes sense for their business to do that. And one step cooler would have been the 40 biggest banks having a, you know, right. Instead of just JP Morgan running the, it's running the one node, having a distributed for sure. 40 big banks, having a coin and yeah, yeah, yeah. it wouldn't, wouldn't be as good for JP, but it would have been, then also you would have been like, wait a minute, 
Banker yeah. coin. Banker coin. <laughs> um, all right. Before we finish up, I uh, usually do rapid fire questions. Um, you don't have to answer rapid fire though. Uh, what's the most important company in crypto other than Galaxy? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, that's a good question. Uh, listen, you know, the, I mean, in a lot of ways, Coinbase has been the most important U.S.-based company in terms of connecting to the, the end user. Yeah. Uh, really driving adoption. Consensus has been a really important company in terms of, you know, creating this Ethereum ecosystem. Uh they were in our office last week. They gave a presentation. It was A+. Uh, you know, Block One is interesting. That they've, you know, the EOS blockchain, they kicked out. They have a huge war chest. They've hired a ton of smart people, and they've got a lot of cool things. Mm-hmm. You know, you wait come June, July, you're going to see announcements mm-hmm. uh, that I think are going to be exciting in that space. And, you know, it's, it, we're still early enough in this space, you know, there's a layer of sovereignty when I think of Bitcoin that is slow and expensive, uh, the th- kind of thick value where where you would feel comfortable transferring big value. Uh, you can take some time to transfer big value. Mm-hmm. You know, EOS has taken this universe of very fast uh, transaction speed, and so you will more transactions, less value. And mm-hmm. so well, we've been investing in lots of gaming companies that are building on top of it. it makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. And so how this whole Web 3.0 plays out is still really early. You know, we just had Cosmos come out. And um, and so, but I think these companies that are investing lots in the developers and the developing communities are are the essential companies in a lot of ways, Yeah. Uh, you know, for the space. What's the um, one regulation that Binance, you, would, you know, oh, you, you got to give Binance. I mean, he he's dominating right now and in recreating the energy of, and I don't know in the long run, it's, 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 it's fun and it's exciting. I don't know if in the long run, uh, you'll see all these, these new, new, new deals that are getting done mm-hmm. uh, through his distribution product. My sense is they're going to go up and they're going to go down. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, People are going to fade again. Like rerunning the 2016-17 playbook isn't smart for the whole space. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a frenzy. It was a speculative bubble. Uh, it was fun. Have you, you ever seen anything like that before? No, <laughs> I, I've not. I've been in bubbles before, but yeah. I remember looking at the chart of Bitcoin when it went from 12 to 20. And I was like, I've never seen a chart on a log, a log chart go parabolic. And mm-hmm. it did. And we kind of picked 20. 20 was going to be the top at one point, and it was just because you could draw a line on a, on a log chart. There's not a chart you can find literally in history mm-hmm. uh, of any kind of large market cap that goes parabolic on a log chart yeah. that takes out the upward channel. And so that was a frenzy that, you know, was fun to participate in. It necessarily wasn't wasn't horrible for the space because it dragged in mm-hmm. energy and excitement. It wasn't great. And I don't think we're going to see it again. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see these little mini versions of excitement. That's not really the next chapter of this. Mm-hmm. The next chapter is actually building out product that works, uh, is getting you know blockchains fast enough and dApps on top that are consumer you know interfacing that are easy to use. Uh, institutions buying into the those three buckets we talked about. You know the 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 market for money mm-hmm. from Bitcoin to whatever stable coin or X coin there is. Uh, 
Web 3.0, and then this whole new world of digitalizing, you know, old assets, art, you know, non-fungible tokens. All of that. So there are three buckets. I think it's all happening. Uh, takes longer than we all wanted to. It's all right. It'll happen. That's it. <laughs> what what, uh, what one regulation would you change or improve if you could? I would wish. So we have an SEC who in their DNA under the Trump administration says, we don't want to regulate a lot. We've already told you the rules. Let, let. I don't think that's fair because okay. you've also got FINRA that's not approving lots of stuff. And I wish they would give a little more clarity. Um, so really just get the clarity on a whole bunch of stuff across crypto. Yeah, because what's slowing growth down, right? The the, the security token world isn't clear. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, um, what's slowing growth down is that, that level of clarity and they're, they're just still waiting. Yeah. Um, I do think they'll they'll make some progress, but uh, that would be the if you if you can knock the regulators and say, yeah. hey, could you could you speed it up a little bit? <laughs> um, well, and look, I've always said that tell entrepreneurs what the rules are, right, and, and give them confidence that those rules aren't going to get changed or kind of pulled out from underneath them, and they'll go figure out how to build businesses. Listen, so the frenzy of the market allowed people to. You know, go to this idea of, I mean, part of the the, the theme of crypto was the democratization of finance. Mm -hmm. Why should Mike Novogratz be able to invest in a biotech firm or buy a buy an expensive piece of art, but the man on the street can't? Well, okay, let's digitalize, let's fractionalize it, and mm -hmm. give him a chance. Well, I don't think at the core, regulators, the Republican administration in charge, doesn't think that's would be a good idea. Their job though was to protect the little guy and the little mm -hmm. guy got run over mm -hmm. in that process. Mm -hmm. And there was fraud and there was hype and even the whole ICO process, the way it worked, I got in early and then you'd get your buddy's tokens and then you'd raise tokens and you'd hype it up and you had these up downs. Like that wasn't good for anybody. And mm -hmm. so the regulators have said, no, 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 no. The little guy can't participate. And I think for the next few years, the little guy's not gonna be able to participate in any of the security coin offerings. I don't think that's the long-term end. Yeah. I think once there is a sobriety and and there are credentializers and there are there are underwriters in the system, uh, we will see a a crowdsourced distribution of assets that retail never had access to before. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that's the long term end. I think we s had a step back. The regulator is like, no, 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 no. So it's 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 one step back for two steps forward. Absolutely. Um, what's your most controversial thought in crypto? Like what's the one thing that you believe that you think most other people disagree with? I think we're going to, well, I'm not sure they disagree with it. I think in five years, you're going to literally disrupt the entire advertising business. Oh, really? I Explain do. that. I, you know, when you you look at the, the, the ability to take, uh, there's a company uh, of Atomic, uh, Eric Pullier's company, uh, and, you know, he can create, that jack a digital version of it or coca-cola's and imagine flying your airplane over new york city a real airplane and dumping out virtual cokes mm -hmm. and me and you with our phone just like pokemon go we're catching those cokes and we can now bring them in and convert them and maybe it's a new coke a new flavor whatever it is yep. and so we've just done this product launch uh by d dumping a virtual good that's a unique object that when i Shift it from my phone or from my blockchain to the to the to the store. It disappears from mm -hmm. my phone, mm -hmm. uh, or it could be 
uh, they did an experiment with butterflies. They had a bunch of butterflies around. If you caught one of the butterflies, you could get $50 to your charity. Or it could be a beer that if I give that beer to five people, it actually fills up and I actually can turn it into for real beer. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're going to see gifting and advertising transformed when we have this grid out there where the the, the, the two-dimensional world or the three-dimensional world and the virtual world kind of intersect. Yeah. And China sees it. I mean, look, all over Asia, this stuff's happening, right? Yeah. The red envelope and WeChat and, and all this stuff is happening. And, you know, the technology's there mm -hmm. now. Uh, there's a bunch of companies working on it. Uh, yeah. Wax, Wax has a new company. They're going to literally take fancy tennis shoes and you can s buy them and they're going to put them in a warehouse. You know how the, the people trade these tennis mm -hmm. shoes all the mm -hmm. time? Uh, it's a huge market of trading like yep. fancy Nikes. Well, right now I got to sell them to you and you got to sell them to them. What if we put the put them in a in a warehouse? Now we've got the digital form of them and we're just trading them around. Yep. Just all of a sudden sit in a centralized database. Yes. <laughs> They're building databases to store tennis shoes. Yep. And other consumer goods. And so I think you're going to see that part of the world shift much faster than people think. Yeah. What's the most important book you've ever read? Ah, oh, it's a good question. In the last few years, it was Sapiens. Sapiens. I think, you know, Hariri is brilliant. This idea that humans are storytellers and that it's just a story is such a powerful, it's powerful on your individual journey. Mm -hmm. Like everything you think about, that's ah, just a story. I don't like, I don't like, that's eh, a story. You can convince yourself to try any food if you just unwind the story. Yep. I was a picky eater growing up. Now I will eat, literally eat anything. My last thing was uni. I don't like uni. I like all sushi but uni. Now I think uni is literally the best thing on the menu. <laughs> and I it was just a, it was a shift of mindset. Like mm -hmm. we're and so he he does that both on the individual, but he does it on the societal basis. And yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. So uh, before I finish up, I always let you ask me one question, but we have to talk about non crypto stuff, which is uh, aliens. Do you think that they're real? You think aliens exist? Uh, go do ayahuasca and you'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll certainly think so. Is there other life force out there? You know, there has to be. And I don't think I've seen any other than in my mind, but just my, my mathematical instincts tell me, uh, yeah, we're not the only people out there. All right. And so most people think about space, aliens, all this stuff. As I've asked this question to everybody, uh, it's got me to think more about the depths of the ocean because we probably actually know less about the ocean than we do yeah. about space. Would you rather go to the depths of the ocean or to space? Like if you had to go to one, which one are you less afraid of going to? You know, it all depends on if we got the Star Trek speed. <laughs> like, I, you know, sitting sitting in a, in a space capsule going through black for like 11 years to get somewhere it doesn't interest me but if i yeah. get that if i if i, if I go to the turbo or hyperspeed and you can just show up 100 percent space okay but i love the oceans as well i, I do uh, yeah i i just the bottom of the ocean scares the hell out of me i think like what what's down there we don't know it's just i don't know all kinds of freaky things yeah for sure what uh what one question do you have for me to uh, to finish it up that's a good question so Hmm. Who's been your most exciting guest you've had on this place? The most exciting? Um, or where you learn the most? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I you're you're going to piss off the other 90, I'm sure. No, I'm going to throw two or three out there. Uh, one, um, two of the highest energy, like most fun ones um, were uh, Josh Brown uh, and uh, um, reform broker on Twitter and uh, Jim uh, O'Shaughnessy. So both of them came in very different 
you know, kind of perspective. Jim literally came in and said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything about crypto like five times and said, okay, what do you want to talk about? Uh, <laughs> and Josh just was being himself. And uh, when I asked him the alien question, he uh, out of nowhere said, ghosts are more real than aliens, which, uh, you know. That's a strange answer. To, to this day, I give him a hard time about. But, uh, but those two guys were the most fun. I think the most uh, impressive person was CZ. And it was really, again, just how he's built the company, scaled it so quickly, you know, so many different countries. Um, and then the, my favorite conversation was with uh, Peter McCormick, who does the What Bitcoin Did podcast. He came on. Uh, we didn't talk about crypto at all. And so I just got to talk to him about his life. You know, he's got some, uh, kids and and just kind of how he has um, built a career, lost a career, rebuilt a career. Now he focuses full time on this. And um, it reminds me a lot of like kind of your whole you got to figure shit out. You got a journey in life and and kind of what that journey looks like and the the kind of heroics involved. Um, that one was really, uh, really cool to uh, to hear. And then you also said that you did uh, what six marathons in the Sahara Desert. And I'm sitting here thinking about what crazy shit I can go do to beat that. <laughs> I got a list for you. I'll give you afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much. I think uh, I think people are really going to enjoy this. So uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Awesome. Thank you. Another word from our sponsors at Total. They're kind of like Kayak, which helps you find the best flights. But Total helps you find liquidity by aggregating decentralized exchanges and optimally routing trades for execution. Remember, that's total.com slash pomp. T-O-T-L-E dot com slash pomp. Go check it out. Let me know what you think. Tweet at me. I'll drop you some fire emojis. Total.com slash pomp. One more word from our sponsor, BlockFi. Their new interest account allows you to securely deposit your Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. This rate actually compounds, so you receive a 6.2% APY, which is very attractive given the alternatives. So you can actually take your Bitcoin, you can deposit it with BlockFi, and get paid an interest rate of 6% in return. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP, again, BlockFi.com slash POMP, to sign up and start earning interest on your crypto today. As we all know, crypto makes tax season a headache. Ain't nobody like dealing with this stuff, so let Zenledger do it for you. If you go to zenledger.io slash off the chain, you'll get 20% off your 2018 tax forms. These guys have a fast and simple tax reporting tool that saves you time and money. That's right. When you listen to this podcast, you get smarter and richer. One more time for the people in the back, that's zenledger.io slash off the chain. Go check them out and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.